Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fank, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 12, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we'll be presenting part 11 of our series on Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. It will be subtitled, Israel According to the Flesh, which is basically how it's going to end. It can be imagined that if Paul of Tarsus had sat down and wrote a book explaining the biblical and historical foundations of his Christian teachings and why he had taken the gospel of Christ exclusively to the nations of Europe and and Italia, that the introductory chapter of that book may include some of this very language found here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, but it would also include the language found in Romans chapters 4 and 9, and then in Hebrews chapter 8. Many of the most notable nations of Europe, as they were in the time of Polytosis, had consisted of, or were even founded by, the descendants of the children of Israel of the Old Testament. Paul's epistles explicitly state as much, and the literal interpretations of those statements are dismissed or even mocked by the so-called scholars of today. This concept is indeed consistent with all biblical teaching, as well as archaeology and the classical histories. And it only sounds fantastic to modern men, men who are conceited in their worldly knowledge, because this concept, sadly, is not taught in worldly schools. That, however, is not the fault of Paul of Tarsus because it certainly should be taught in schools. The poet Homer, the most famous and usually considered to be the earliest of the great Greek epic poets, was writing not long before 600 B.C. I know that some sources try to put them all the way back to 800, 750 B.C. Those people are all clowns. 600 B.C. is the dating for the poet Homer. In his epics, however, Homer was not describing the world of his own time. If he was, they would be very different. Rather, Homer was attempting to describe the world and its inhabitants, as he believed that they existed in a time 600 years before his own time, when the Trojan War was fought. The Greek historian Thucydides and others also helped to supply the chronology. For such reasons, Homer spoke of the Phoenicians very often, but never mentioned their most famous city, Tyre. According to Flavius Josephus, the building of Tyre and its rise to fame began about 240 years before the building of Solomon's temple. If 
such a statement by Josephus is accurate, and there is no reason to doubt it, then it, it totally vindicates Homer's omission of mentions of Tyre from his accounts. That is one example of how the history of Homer can be corroborated. Homer also omitted any mention of Dorians in Greece, or even in Europe, except that he names them as one of the tribes inhabiting the island of Crete. By all Greek accounts, the Dorians invaded the Peloponnesus and displaced the Danans from much of Greece about two generations after the Trojan War, or not long before 1100 BC. The great kings of the Bible, David, Solomon, and Hiram of Tyre, had not yet been born. In his Antiquities of the Judeans, Book 12, the Judean historian and Levitical priest Flavius Josephus had recorded the following, speaking about a time beginning about 175 B.C., and he wrote, And now Hyrcanus' father, Joseph, died. He was a good man and of great magnanimity, and brought the Judeans out of a state of poverty and lowliness to one that was more splendid. He retained the right to collect the taxes of Syria and Phoenicia and Samaria for 22 years. His uncle also, Onias, died about this time and left the high priesthood to his son, Simeon. And when he was dead, Onias, his son, succeeded him in that dignity. To him it was that Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, sent an embassy with a letter, the copy whereof here follows. Josephus Antiquities 2.25, we started. 2.24, I'm sorry. Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, to Onias sends greetings. We have met with a certain writing, whereby we have discovered that both the Judeans and the Lacedaemonians are of the same family and are derived from the kindred of Abraham. It is but just, therefore, that you, who are our brethren, should send us about any of your concerns as you please. We will also do the same thing, and esteem your concerns as our own, and will look upon our concerns as in common with yours. Demodeles, who brings you this letter, will bring your answer back to us. This letter is foursquare, and the seal is an eagle, with a dragon in his claws. And these, back to Josephus, and these were the contents of the letter which was sent from the king of the Lacedaemonians. Laconia, a district in ancient Greece, was also called Lacedaemonia, or Lacedaemonia, 
And it was a district of the southwest Peloponnesus where Sparta was found. And its inhabitants were also primarily of the stock of the Dorians, the same great race of the Greeks which had founded Corinth. Of course, there were Ionian Greeks and Danan Greeks and Pelasgian Greeks and other sorts of Greeks that they had, had broken off in splinter groups from those. Later on, there were Argives. Athenians were Ionians. Greek was not a race. It was a culture, a language, a civilization. The tribes were the races of Greece. And they had diverse, they had at diverse times come to Greece by their own accounts and had different points of origin, even though they were all ultimately the same, of the same race, the race of Adam. Because of the ravaging of the temple and the wars with the Syrians, which began around that same time, this letter from Arius of Lacedaemonia was not answered for several years. But it was eventually answered. This answer is recorded in 1 Maccabees, chapter 12, and we will read from verse 5. And this is the copy of the letter which Jonathan wrote to the Lacedaemonians. Jonathan, the high priest, and the elders of the nation, and the priests, and the other of the Judeans, unto the Lacedaemonians, their brethren, send greeting. There were letters sent in times past unto Onias, the high priest, from Darius. Now, I must say that Darius is not a confusion for Arius. However, Darius is a title of respect that the Judeans had used of, and the Greeks had used of some of the kings of Persia who were called Darius by the Greeks and are therefore known to us as Darius from history. But they had other Persian names. Darius was only a title. There were letters sent in times past unto Onias, the high priest, from Darius, who reigned then among you, to signify that you are our brethren, as the copy here underwritten does specify. At which time Onias entreated the ambassador that was sent honorably and received the letters, wherein declaration was made of the league in friendship. Therefore, we also, albeit we need none of these things, that we have the holy books of Scripture in our hands to comfort us, have nevertheless attempted to send unto you for the renewing of brotherhood and friendship, lest we should become strangers unto you altogether. For there is a long time past since you sent unto us, we, therefore, at all times, without ceasing, both in our feasts and other convenient days, do remember you in the sacrifices which we offer, and in our prayers, as reason is, and as it becometh us to think upon our brethren. And we are right glad of your honor, 
As for ourselves, we have had great troubles and wars on every side, for so much as the kings that are round about us have fought against us. Howbeit we would not be troublesome unto you, nor to others of our confederates and friends in these wars, for we have help from heaven that succors us, or succors us, I'm sorry. So as we are delivered from our enemies, and our enemies are brought underfoot. For this cause we chose Numenius, the son of Antiochus, and Antipater, the son of Jason, and sent them under the Romans to renew the amity that we had with them and the former league. We commanded them also to go unto you, and to salute, and to deliver you our letters concerning the renewing of our brotherhood. Wherefore now ye shall do well to give us an answer thereto. Now a copy of the letter from the Lacedaemonians to the Judeans was then included in 1 Maccabees chapter 12. And it states the same things which Josephus had recorded, that the Lacedaemonians and Judeans are brethren, and that they are of the stock of Abraham. A statement which without a doubt signifies literal kinship and not merely some perceived spiritual bond. Therefore, when Paul opens 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and speaking to the Greeks of Corinth, he asserts that our fathers were all under the cloud, attesting that the ancestors of the Corinthians were in the Exodus, as well as his own ancestors. There are several historical witnesses verifying his assertion. And we find that Paul must indeed be taken seriously. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And all had passed through the sea. And all, up to Moses, had immersed themselves in the cloud and in the sea. The cloud being the presence of Yahweh leading the children of Israel up out of the land of Egypt. And all had eaten the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of an attending spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. That word same is here twice, and it's missing in some manuscripts or the others. It's really not that important. If the poet Homer imagined the Dorians to have been on Crete, and nowhere else in Greece or in Europe. Two generations before they had invaded the Peloponnese, circa 
1100 BC. And if the ancient records of the Dorians, as well as those of the Judeans, admit that the Dorians are of the stock of Abraham, then the only logical conclusion is that the Dorians had settled in Crete from their original home in Palestine, ostensibly in Dor, the city on the coast of Manasseh, and then later that they moved on to invade Greece. Only this could explain how the assertions which Paul of Tarsus makes here are true. For this, Paul has a circumstantial witness in the ancient history leading up to and including the epic poetry of Homer. And he has two surviving material witnesses. In the histories of Flavius, Josephus, and one Maccabees. In this understanding, we also see one portion of the fulfillment of the ancient prophets of Israel, that the seed of Abraham had indeed become many nations, and that the lost sheep of Israel had indeed wandered over every mountain by the time of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34. There are some commentators who insist that the Greek word for rock here, and this is a good one, it, it um, never ceases to amaze me the things that some people contrive to set themselves up as some great expositor. There are some commentators who insist that the Greek word for rock here must refer to something other than Christ, since the word is feminine in its grammatical form. However, simply because a word is feminine or masculine in form does not mean that it is feminine or masculine in its application. Rather, the Greeks, according to Liddell and Scott, use the masculine form of the word petros to describe a stone. And the feminine form of Petra to describe bedrock. If you imagine little stones to break off of bedrock, well, there's the mother of the rock and these are the stones. That makes sense. But that's how the Greeks, demonstrably, how the Greeks use the words. At their entry for the word Petros, Liddell and Scott have in part a stone distinguished from Petra. And at the corresponding entry for Petra, they have a rock, a ledge or shelf of rock. Petra is a fixed rock. Petros is a stone. The commentators who protest that Petra is feminine take advantage of the Greek usage in an attempt to claim that the rock in the desert that Paul mentioned here is really the church or the ecclesia, the assembly of the children of Israel. However, 
if we look at the Septuagint and the Masoretic text, the entire congregation of Israel in the desert was commonly referred to as the Ecclesia. And to assert that the rock which nourished them in the desert was the same Ecclesia is to assert that the children of Israel saved themselves from Egypt. And that assertion is as ridiculous applied to, to the Exodus as it would be applied to prophecy today. The children of Israel can't save themselves from anything. Indeed, the rock which was nourished, well, I'm sorry, the rock which nourished them in the desert was Christ, and their deliverance was not of themselves. And Paul is telling us that that rock in the desert, that attending spiritual rock, was Christ. And we will have more on that issue later. Verse 5. Yet, with the greater number of them, Yahweh had not been pleased, for they had been thrown down in the desert. But these had become models for us, for us not to become desirers of evil, just as they also in that place had desired. Reflecting upon the relationship of a man or a woman to his ancestors, in this case, a child to their ancestors. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5, But if any widow have children or nephews, let them first learn to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now, that's the King James Version. However, in order to better illustrate the meaning of what was being said, we will quote the passage from the Christian New Testament, which says, And if any widow has child or grandchild, they must first learn piety at home and to return compensation. That's what requite means, to pay back. And to return compensation to their ancestors. Ostensibly, Paul is saying that one returns compensation to one's ancestors by living piously. Because if one is indeed a child of God, one's very existence was made possible by the piety of one's ancestors. So you pay it back. If you're a child of Israel here in the world today, you're here because whether they did it consciously or not doesn't matter. Hundreds of generations of your ancestors obeyed the law of God. If you're a bastard, well, <laughs> you have your parents to blame. Paul tells the Corinthians in a different way. Here, what he had later told the Romans in chapter 15 of his epistle to them, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now, let's look at this in a different light. 
Imagine the Dorian Greeks to have claimed an alien, and this is a supposition I'm making, an alien Abraham for a forefather, like they did in the, in, in the letter that they wrote to the Judeans. And imagine the Dorian Greeks to have accepted an alien faith in the gospel of Christ if they were anything other than Israelites. If the Dorian Greeks were not actually Israelites, then their own ancestors and their own pagan tradition should have mattered more to them than the alien Abraham and the alien faith. Except in Christianity, the Dorian Greeks would be found dishonoring their own ancestors in the favor of something alien. But on the other hand, if the Dorian Greeks were Israelites, then in turning to the gospel of Christ, they were forsaking the sins of their more immediate fathers, the later Israelites, whom the biblical record had described as having went off into paganism. They would be fulfilling the words of the prophets who said they would do so, and they would be honoring their more ancient ancestors, those whom Paul lays forth as an example of piety and mercy here. Either the Dorian Greeks were Israelites, and the true Israelites were Arians, or, or, one of the greatest ancient branches of the Aryan race, had forsaken their ancestors and spat in the face of their fathers by accepting Christianity. Joshua Christ said to the Edomite Jews, the impostors who rejected the him, that if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. The acceptance of Christ by the Dorian Corinthians is the final proof that they were indeed the children of Abraham, just as the ancient Lacedaemonian king had attested that they were and the ancient high priest of Judea had agreed. For that reason, Paul had told them, in the opening chapter of this epistle, that the proof of the anointed had been fulfilled in them. Now, a lot of people I've heard dismiss the letter from the king of Sparta to Judea, saying, oh, that's just diplomatic talk. But you could check out many similar letters recorded by Josephus to various governments between various governments and the high priest of Judea, and none of them have that language. None of them say that none, none of them say that they were the offspring of Abraham. There's only one 
angle that the letter from the Lacedaemonians could be interpreted from. And that is to understand that the Dorians were indeed of the stock of Abraham. And the original Israelites were, of course, Aryans. Paul goes on in verse 7 to say, Neither become idolaters, just as some of them, as it is written, the people were seated to eat and to drink, then rose up to play. Here Paul quotes from Exodus chapter 32, which records the first major departure of the people from the promises which they had very recently made at Mount Sinai. And verse 1 says, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up! Make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them in their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. He didn't build an altar to it. He built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. Although Aaron had complied with the building of the idol, he nevertheless declared the next day to be a feast day to Yahweh. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now that word play may also mean to mock or to scorn. And the same form of this word appears here in Genesis 39, 14, 39, 17, and in Exodus 23, verse 32. The children of Israel must have been partaking in activities which made a mockery of their Sinai covenant. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Go, get thee down, for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, they have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I have commanded them. They have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. The calf itself was only an inanimate object, However, the mockery and the activities associated with the worship of the calf, they were the real sin, which later in the account are only described so far as dancing. From Exodus 32, speaking of Moses, and it came to pass as soon as he came nigh into the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. 
And Moses' anger waxed hot. And he cast the tables out of, his, out of his hands, referring to the tablets, and broke them beneath the mount. However, it is even later made evident that there was more involved than mere dancing in verse 25 of that chapter. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, they were doing more than dancing. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him, and he said unto them, Thus saith Yahweh, God of Israel, put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the day of the people that day about three thousand men. Now it is evident that Aaron had not confronted the people after he announced the feast. However, he made the people naked. Ostensibly, Aaron had simply taken the clothing which the people who had participated in such activity had laid aside on their own. We see also that only 3,000 men were slain in punishment, although many hundreds of thousands had come up out of Egypt. A small percentage of sinners can cause the downfall of a large nation when those sins are permitted by the balance of the people. But there was more than just dancing because the people had no clothes. Verse 8, neither should we commit fornication just as some of them had committed fornication. And in one day, 23,000 had fallen. This can only be a reference to the episode in the book of Numbers where the children of Israel had committed whoredom with the daughters of Moab. Here, there is a discrepancy between Paul's 23,000 and the 24,000 figure given at Numbers 25.9 in both the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. The line did not survive in the Dead Sea Scrolls, so we don't know. The Greek manuscript, known as Miniscule 81, which is dated to 1044 AD and stored at the British, La British Library, and also several of the Vulgate and Syriac manuscripts, as well as some copies of the manuscripts of the majority text, seem to have corrected Paul's figure here to match the one in Numbers 25. The reason for Paul's discrepancy can only be conjectured, but we must note, and this is important to me anyway, we must note that those who have examined it while criticizing the details seem to overlook the most important aspect of this citation. They love to correct Paul, but they don't have a clue what he's saying. Paul's intended use of the term for fornication is to describe the joining of the sons of Israel to women 
of another tribe. Therefore, as Jude asserts that fornication is the pursuit of strange or different, because the Greek word heteros really means different flesh, Paul also asserts that fornication is race mixing. He's calling this event in Numbers 25 fornication. So Paul, even though he considered fornication in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to be an illicit sexual act between a man and his father's wife, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he's pointing at a race-mixing event and calling that fornication. The event to which Paul refers is described in Numbers chapter 25. And Israel abode in Shittim. And the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people under the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat, and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And Yahweh said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before Yahweh against the sun that the fierce anger of Yahweh may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal-peor. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses, and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the high priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. My bet is he stabbed the man of Israel through his lower back. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. The children of Israel were commanded at Mount Sinai to be a separate and holy people. Holy meaning separated and dedicated to God. This concept is first seen in Exodus chapter 19. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then shall you be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy, a set apart and dedicated to God, and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. This commandment stands today, as the Apostle Peter invoked it in his epistles to the dispersed tribes of Israel. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and he said, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light which in time past were not a people, 
but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Peter in that verse cites Hosea in a prophecy which refers to the punishment and reconciliation of the children of Israel and upholds the commandment for them to be a separate and holy race, a separate and holy people in Christ. From Malachi chapter 2, we see that other so-called gods have children, and that Yahweh, the God of Israel, refuses to recognize those children and would punish their fathers. Malachi 2.10 is a series of rhetorical questions. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? Malachi 2.11 explains the situation posed by the three rhetorical questions in verse 10. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the holiness of Yahweh, who he loved, and has married the daughter of a strange God. How could we all have one God that created us. Judah has married the daughter of a strange God. Yahweh will cut off the man that does this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob and him that offers an offering unto Yahweh of hosts. Judah had married a Canaanite woman, the daughter of a strange God. Looking at the history of the Canaanite people, we see from Genesis chapter 15 that they had mingled themselves with the Kenites, the Rephaim giants, and other tribes which had not descended from Noah. Yahshua Christ himself, in his discourse with the Canaanite and Edomite Jews who opposed him, explained this when they made the same claim of which Malachi prophesied, and they asserted in John 8, 41, that we be not born of fornication, we have one Father, even God. And when Joshua replied, he said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, proving that they are the children of that strange God the daughter of that strange God who Judah married. If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Malachi 2.10. Let's go back to Malachi 2.10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother? Back to John eight forty two. 
If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. True brothers do not hate each other. They love each other. Neither. Came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word, you are of your father the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Fornication was one important reason why ancient Israel was put off from Yahweh God. In Hosea chapter 5, we read, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled, whoredom, fornication. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God. For the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known Yahweh. And the pride of Israel does testify to his face. Therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. Judah also shall fall with them. They shall go with their flocks and with their herds to seek Yahweh, but they shall not find him. In times past you were not a people. He has withdrawn himself from them. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Now shall a month devour them with their portions. The distinction was more than merely religious. It must have also been racial. Since there were tribes whose people the Israelites were permitted to intermarry with under certain circumstances. And there were tribes which the Israelites were forbidden to intermarry with under any circumstances. If we all had one father and one God, how could there be strange children whom God would destroy for that very reason? In the New Testament, the Apostle Jude continued to consider fornication the pursuit of different flesh. Jude 7. And in the Revelation, Yahshua Christ himself warned about fornication where in chapter 2, he spoke of Jezebel, using her as a type to represent those who promote fornication. Revelation 2.20 Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman, Jezebel, you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication. The church is being reprimanded for allowing somebody in their congregation to teach people that they can commit fornication. That describes just about every mainstream Judaized church today.
every single damned one of them. Yeah, I call them damned because that's just what they are. They've damned themselves. They're facing damnation. It's not a curse. It's the truth. And this is a message to the church of Tyra. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication. And she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. The children have no chance to repent, eh? I will kill her children with death. And all the assembly shall know that I am he who searches the reins and the hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Many Judaized, pseudo-Christians love to claim that the New Testament Jesus is loving and kind. Unlike that mean-spirited, murderous God of the Old Testament, most of these idiots have never read either Testament. Just like the God of the Old Testament, to whom Jesus so often refers, Jesus himself will kill the children of race mixers. They shall not see the kingdom of heaven. And they have no room to repent. The race mixers have room to repent. But he doesn't give that opportunity to the children. He says, I will kill her children with death. Every bastard child in creation can be considered a child of Jezebel. For that reason, Paul warns against fornication in relation to Numbers chapter 25, not merely to idolatry. For the children of Israel were described as committing whoredom with the daughters of Moab, not with their gods, with the daughters of Moab, and only after as having joined themselves unto Balpeor. In the ancient world, fornication and idolatry went hand in hand, unbeknownst to most so-called Christians today, race mixing is also idolatry as well, as Christ himself professes in Revelation chapter 2. Neither, verse 9, Neither should we tempt Christ, just as some of them also had tempted, and by the serpents they perished. Neither should we tempt Christ, just as some of them, those people 1,500 years before Christ, had tempted Admittedly, some manuscripts have variant readings. The Codex Alexandrinus has the word for God instead. 
Some manuscripts had the word for Lord. Here the text of the Christogenian New Testament agrees with the 3rd century papyrus, P46, as well as the Codex Claromontanus and the majority text, and therefore the King James Version. Paul had already declared that the spiritual rock which sustained the Israelites in the desert was also Christ, where the manuscripts do not have that argument. So it is not fantastic to follow those manuscripts which have Christ here. From Deuteronomy chapter 32. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew as the small rain upon the tender, the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass, because I will publish the name of Yahweh, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. He is the rock. The fools, they're, they're a minority, but the minority of fools in Christian identity who say that the rock of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is the church or the ecclesia or the assembly because the word is feminine. Deny the plain truth in Deuteronomy 32.4, right? As Yahshua Christ attended, have I, I'm sorry, attested, have I been so long a time with you, speaking to Philip, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how do you say that? Show us the Father. He is the Father. And in John chapter 10, he says, I and my Father are one. There's a certain clown that calls himself a Christian identity <clears throat> pastor. He's really a Jew from Chicago who denies oneness. Well, Christ didn't say, I and my Father are two. The Old Testament says Yahweh was the rock in the desert. Paul of Tarsus says that Christ was the rock in the desert. Why? Because Christ said, I and my Father are one. In the case of God, one plus one equals one. Evidently, God transcends the wisdom of man. The incident to which Paul refers is found in Numbers chapter 21. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread. 
neither is there any water. And our soul loathed in this light bread, meaning the manna. And Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the, of the people of Israel died. I'm sorry, I meant to say that God transcends the logic of man, where one plus one equals one. Paul goes on to say, neither should you mutter, just as some of them had muttered, and by the destroyer they perished. That destroyer is a different word than the Apollyon we see in the Revelation. The Greek word for destroyer here is holothrutes. And that's a word which is only found here in surviving Greek literature. Secular, biblical, doesn't matter. It's only found here in Paul. Although other forms of the same word are, indeed, much more common. We read in Numbers chapter 14 from verse 26, And Yahweh spoke unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmurs against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me. Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith Yahweh, and ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you, according to your whole number, from twenty years old and upward, which have murmured against me, doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, the only two who would survive to see the promised land. The rest of them died in the desert because they were complainers. We don't complain about our trials and our station in life, and we will do better. Verse 11. Now these things, as examples, happened to them, and have been written for our admonition to those whom have attained to the fulfillment of the ages. The first clause in this psalm, in this verse, has four different versions among the ancient major manuscripts. The Greek word, kat and teo, Strong's number 2658, is to come to, to arrive at, or to attain to. Therefore, it is to attain here. Where the King James Version has come, it is attained because Paul is not speaking in a spatial sense in this passage, as if you come to a place, but rather Paul is speaking in a temporal sense. The Greek word telos, telos, Strong's number 5056, is the fulfillment or completion of anything. It's consummation, it's issue, it's result, it's end. So the word being in a plural here, 
And having a definite article, it is rendered as the fulfillments where the King James Version has the ends. Finally, in the New Testament, the King James Version has translated the Greek word ahion. Strong's number 165, ahion or aion, the, from which we get the English word eon. This word was translated in the King James Version as world 39 times. And the related word, ahionius, is world three times in the King James. Yes, ahion means a period of existence, an age. And the word ahionius means lasting for an age, eternal. Of these 42 occurrences, 25 are in the epistles of Paul, according to Strong's Concordance. The word ahion could not possibly refer to the planet or world as the term is so wrongly interpreted today. It can only refer to a period of time. Therefore, it is highly unlikely that the King James Version, version translators limited the meaning of the word world to a spatial definition. Rather, originally, the word world, if we go back before the King James translators to Old and Middle English, the word world was derived from two ancient Saxon words, meaning man, were, and age, old, world, world. We see that word "auld" in the um, in the Scottish New Year's song, "Auld Lang Syne." It means "good long time" or something like that. The word "world" therefore refers to the age of biblical man, and not the planet or everyone on it. Isaiah chapter 27 is a good prophetic summary of the purpose and the fulfillment of these ages of man, which Paul refers to. In that day, Yahweh, which is sore and great and strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent. Even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea of the Jews in New York and Tel Aviv. In that day, sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine. I, Yahweh, do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle, the other people? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. He shall cause them 
that come out of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit the day we have no more Jews in New York and Tel Aviv. He has smitten him as he smote those that smote him. I'm sorry, has he smitten him as he smote those that smote him? Or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? In measure, when it shoots forth, thou wilt debate it. If he stays, his rough wind in the day of the east wind. By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder, when he gives up his idols, the groves and the images shall not stand up. This is the fruit to take away Jacob's sin when he puts away his idols and destroys them. Yet the defense city shall be desolate, and the habitation forsaken, and left like a wilderness. And there shall the calf feed, and there shall he lie down, and consume the branches thereof. When the bows thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore he that made them will not have mercy on them. And he that formed them will show him no favor. And it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall beat off from the channel of the river unto the stream of Egypt. And ye shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown. The last trumpet of revelation. And they shall come, which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship Yahweh in the holy mount at Jerusalem. The outcasts of Egypt, they're not Egyptians. I love it when universalists read this stuff and come up with all the... Um, crazy corruptions of scripture that they come up with. The outcast of Egypt are the children of Israel who were in captivity in Egypt. Those who were ready to perish in Assyria are the children of Israel who were liable to the penalty of death, but who, under the mercy of Yahweh, had ultimately fulfilled the promises that Israel would become a multitude of nations while they were in captivity. From the Assyrians. In connection with this same thing, Yahweh had promised through the prophet Jeremiah, For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet I will not make a full end of thee. 
and will not, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee wholly unpunished. This describes those who would attain to the fulfillments of the ages. Verse 12. Those are the children of Israel who survived that punishment. Consequently, he who is expecting to be established must beware lest he shall fall. Repentance and a returning to Yahweh God must be made in a spirit of humility, as Paul also warns in Galatians chapter 6. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual, the law is spiritual, ye who know the law, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Therefore we do not exalt ourselves over our ancestors because of their errors. But rather, we take these things as admonishments that we do not do them ourselves. From Habakkuk, chapter 1, Art thou not from everlasting, O Yahweh my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Yahweh. Thou hast ordained them for judgment, and, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. So we look to our salvation with that attitude. Temptation has not seized you except from manhood, but trustworthy is Yahweh, who will not permit you to be tempted where you are able. But with the temptation, he will also bring about the way out for which to be able to bear it. The majority text ends verse 13 saying that you would be able to bear it. Paul says temptation has not seized you except from manhood. He's basically teaching the same thing that James had taught in a different way, in his epistle. While men are indeed tempted, the Apostle James warns us that the temptation itself does not come from God. Temptation has not seized you except from manhood, the weaknesses of our fleshly, manly bodies. The Apostle James warns us that the temptation itself does not come from God, which is what Paul is saying here. Where in chapter 1 of this epistle he says, of his epistle he says, from verse 13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. 
Then, when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished or when it is accomplished, brings forth death, judgment under the law. Paul is not saying that God tempts men, but that when men are tempted, that God provides men with a way out of that temptation. Of course, it goes without saying that a man must turn to God in order to find that way out. Paul refers to the same thing in Hebrews chapter 4, where he says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was at all points tempted like as we are. The temptations of the world tormenting the flesh of the manly body but at all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. In other words, God will also bring about the way out. Grace to help in time of need. We have to turn to Christ when we're tempted and pray that he afford us with the strength to overcome that temptation. If we don't turn to Christ, well, look at the world. That's where we also are heading. On which account, my beloved ones, flee from idolatry. As to those who are prudent, I speak. You determine that which I say. The command to flee from idolatry is clear. And Paul has illustrated the reasons why it is necessary to do so. Yet here, Paul's address, as to those who are prudent, I speak. Paul's address to the prudent must refer to the arguments concerning the fellowship of Christ, which he is about to make. The cup of eulogy, which we bless, is it not fellowship of the blood of Christ? That word eulogy really means blessing, the cup of blessing, which we bless. You, meaning good, logos, meaning speech, good speech when you wish somebody well, when you speak kindly to your brother, you're actually blessing him. When you bless him, when you speak to him with good, kind, heartful words, you're blessing him, even if you're not using church language. The cup of eulogy which we bless, is it not fellowship of the blood of Christ? The wheat bread which we break, is it not fellowship of the body of Christ? The Greek word, artists, Strong's number 740, is literally and properly translated as wheat bread here. 
the Greeks had other words for bread of different types, like Crethus is barley bread. It's simply loaf in verse 17, which follows two, two occasions. When the word appears elsewhere in Paul's epistles, it is wheat bread, sometimes bread or wheat loaf, Hebrews 9.2, in the Christianian New Testament. That's because we translate the word literally in order to illustrate the folly of what some cults perceive to be communion which is centered around temple rituals and the serving of these little... I actually, when I was a child in Catholic school, thought they were pretty damn disgusting, these little paper-like wafers. And those things are quite contrary to the communion of the gospel accounts and of Paul's admonitions and instructions in his epistles, where it is evident that communion is what Christians should share in common every day, every meal, every moment. The bread is not the literal body of Christ. That's Catholic hocus-pocus. The bread is not somehow magically transformed into the body of Christ, since even after it is blessed and broken, it is still wheat bread. Likewise, the wine, filling the cup of eulogy or blessing, is not the literal blood of Christ that's crazy. Rather, the sharing of bread and wine is in the fellowship of the blood and body of Christ. And Christians should share their blessings in common with one another for the reason which Paul is about to state in verse 17, because one loaf one body, we the many are, for we all partake from the one loaf. In the progression of Paul's rhetorical logic, we the many are one loaf, one body, before partaking of the wheat bread of the fellowship of Christ. It is not being a Christian which makes one part of the body. Rather, being a part of the body gives one the opportunity to be a Christian. Because we are a one loaf and one body, we the many. Because we are then we all partake from the one loaf. The people of Israel collectively are the body of Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, and he has given the ambassadors and the interpreters of prophecy and those who deliver the good message and the shepherds, teachers, towards the restoration of the saints for the work of ministering for building of the body of the Christ. It's not the bread that's the body. It's the people that are the body. And again in chapter 5, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the assembly, he is deliverer of the body. The word communion, as it appears in the King James Version, is koinonia. And it means association or partnership or fellowship, signifying a sharing of something in common with another. 
at a proper communion, at a Christian communion, the bread and wine represent the fellowship of the body. And the actual body and blood of Christ are those sitting around the table. This shall be further discussed here in chapter 11, where in 1 Corinthians 11.22, of eating and drinking, we see Paul ask, have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Verse 18, 1 Corinthians 10, Behold, Israel, down through the flesh, the word kata literally means down through, are not those who are eating the sacrifices, partners of the altar. What then do I say? That that which is sacrificed to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? Rather, that whatever the nation sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. The 3rd century papyrus P46 and some of the codices, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Ephraim, Siri, want that last clause of verse 19 where it says, or that an idol is anything. The majority text has the clause, but it has it before the rest of verse 19. Now the codices Vaticanus and Claromontanus have the first clause of verse 20 to read, rather, that whatever they sacrifice, it's still referring to Israel down through the flesh. And it says, rather, that whatever they sacrifice is to demons and not to Yahweh, wanting the words for the nations. The text of the Christogenian New Testament agrees with the 3rd century papyrus P46, the codices Alexandrinus, Sinaiticus, Ephraim, Siri, and the majority text, they all have those words for the nations, right? The phrase ta ethne is the nations, ethne being the plural of ethnos, Strong's number 1484. It's not the heathen or the Gentiles in the Christianian New Testament. It's the nations. Other translations have heathen or Gentiles. But the result is the same. Israel, according to the flesh, Israel down through the flesh, they're the Gentiles. It says it right there in the King James Version, 1 Corinthians 18 and 20. Paul's talking about Israel down through the flesh, or in the King James Version, Israel, after the flesh, they are the subject, and he says, whatever the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice the demons. So Paul is saying, in the King James Version, that Israel, after the flesh, they're the Gentiles. What more do we need? Even without the phrase, the nations. 
It is quite clear that the scope of the statement concerning idolatry is in reference to the genetic, authentic children of Israel. As it says in verse 18, that the subject is Israel down through the flesh. The King James wrote Israel after the flesh. And another way to say the same phrase is Israel according to the flesh. The same Greek phrase, kata sarka, kata meaning kata is a preposition in Greek. It means down through or according to or after. Sarka, sarks, is flesh. The same Greek phrase, where in the King James Version here in 1018 it says, after the flesh, the same exact Greek phrase appears in Acts chapter 2, verse 30, concerning Christ, where Peter says of David, that therefore, being a prophet, meaning David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, the same phrase we see here concerning Israel, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. The same Greek phrase appears again in Romans chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul says of Christ that he was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Katasarka, same phrase. The same Greek phrase appears again in Romans 9, 3, where Paul prays for his kinsmen, those who are Israelites, according to the flesh. Katasarka. Paul uses the term elsewhere, kata, in other contexts, but the meaning is always the same. If Christ is the fleshly, genetic seed of David, kata sarka, according to the flesh, if the Israelites in Judea are Paul's fleshly, genetic kinsmen, kata sarka, according to the flesh, then the nations, of the Greco-Roman world, who Paul refers to here as practitioners of pagan idolatry, are fleshly, genetic Israelites, katasarka, according to the flesh. If, this, if Israel is spiritual, then Christ has to be spiritual. He can't really be of the seed of David, can he? Well, of course he is. And these pagan nations in Europe, they are Israel. If Christ is Christ, those nations are Israel. Nowhere does Paul of Tarsus mention a spiritual Israel. Rather, Paul accounts Israel by tribes two years after this very epistle was written. Where speaking of his arrest by the Jews, he says in Acts chapter 26, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, 
instantly serving God, night and day, hope to come. We may have written hope to attain. Those who have attained the fulfillments of the ages. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Evidently, the Jews and the 12 tribes are two distinctly different entities. The Jews are not the 12 tribes as they claim, and as, as generation after generation of idiot has fallen for. There are many examples of the idolatry of Israel in Scripture, both in Palestine and in their captivity. The prophet Ezekiel, I'm going to offer one of those examples because it's a bridge example. The prophet Ezekiel was a prophet of the captivity, writing in Mesopotamia around the same time that Jeremiah was writing in Judah. In Ezekiel chapter 8, the prophet is shown a vision concerning the temple, and it says in part, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, according to the vision that I saw in the plain. Then he said unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now, the way toward the north. So I lifted up mine eyes, the way toward the north. That's where Israel was, right? And behold, northward, at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. He said, furthermore, unto me, son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary and turn thee yet again and thou shalt see greater abominations. And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. This is simply a vision. Behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in, and behold, the wicked abominations. I'm sorry, behold, in the wall. Then he said unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in, and behold, the wicked abominations that they do here. Now this is the temple in Jerusalem. This is a vision of the temple. So when I went and saw, behold, every form of creeping things, an abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about, probably a sports bar. The words of Ezekiel concerning the idols of Israel are similar to the words which Paul used to describe the Romans in chapter 1 of that epistle, because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. The same thing Ezekiel saw of the children of Israel and their idols, creeping things and abominable 
beasts. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, speaking of the Romans, through lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. who is blessed forever. Amen. The Romans were doing the same things that Ezekiel said the Israelites were doing. Imagine that. The beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul had explained to them that their ancestors had been in the exodus with Moses. We provided historical corroboration verifying Paul's statements. In Romans chapter 1, we have seen Paul assert that the Romans had the truth of God and changed it into a lie. While early Roman history is not as accessible as the history of the Dorian Greeks. Their own Trojan ancestors can also be traced back to the Israelites of Scripture. These are only two branches of the Aryan race, however notable. In truth, the Scythians, the Galatahi or Galatians, the Iberians, the Romans, half of the Greek tribes, all mentioned by Paul, as well as other Aryan tribes which Paul did not mention, such as the Parthians, the Alans, the Goths, and the Britons, had all descended from the Israelites in the Bible. And as Paul wrote these things, all of them were in Europe or thereabouts, sacrificing to pagan deities, to idols, or to demons. Paul is talking about none other than the nations descended from Jacob Israel. Paul himself had explained this in Romans chapter 4. There he said that indeed, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring, that he is to be the heir to society, but through righteousness of faith. Then Paul says, just like Paul denied the Jews in Acts chapter 26, here Paul says, for if they from of the law are heirs, the faith has been voided and the promise annulled. In other words, the Jews who were pretenders keeping the law could not be the heirs. They could not, or the faith is useless. Paul is saying here in Romans, if the Jews are the heirs, the faith is useless. Paul is saying in Acts that the twelve tribes and the Jews are two distinctly different groups. The Jews are not the children of Israel. Any Christian who buys that one is a fool. Paul goes on to say in Romans, for the law results in wrath, so where there is no law, neither is their transgression. Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, 
then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring, not to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Just as it is written, that a father of many nations I have made you, before Yahweh, whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life and calls things not existing as existing, who contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, according to the declaration, thus your offspring will be. Paul was not bringing the gospel to some spiritual Israel. Rather, Paul was bringing the gospel to the dispersions of the ancient Israelites, the seed of the promise, the nations he explains in Romans chapter 4. Israel, according to the flesh, practicing paganism, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that his offspring would become many nations was a historical reality fulfilled before the time of Christ. It was those nations descended from the patriarch Jacob who were the exclusively intended recipients of the message of the gospel. Israel according to the flesh. Since the gospel is the good news concerning the redemption of those same children of Israel. The children of Israel are according to the flesh. They come from sperm. The seed of Abraham. And there are no other children of Israel unless they are according to the flesh, reckoned by tribes right through the end of Scripture. In Acts chapter 28 by Paul, and in the revelation of Yahshua Christ in chapters 7 and 21. According to Paul of Tarsus himself in Acts chapter 26, and according to Yahshua Christ in Revelation 2.9 and in Revelation 3.9, none of these were Jews. As Paul says in Romans chapter 9, the quotes from the prophet Jeremiah in Hebrews chapter 8, the covenants and the promises, the law and the glory, the sonship and the service of God are all exclusively for those same children of Israel according to the flesh. And we will leave tonight with this thought. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. We will continue next Friday with 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Tomorrow evening, Isaiah chapter 56, and some other things I have to get off my chest. Sunday afternoon, Sven Longshanks, Usury in Europe. Praise Yahweh. Good night.